Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're sharing some of our favourite events with the world's greatest writers and thinkers, mixed with backstage conversations with them about the nuances and influences that affect their writing. Today I'm joined by Anjali Q. Ralph, children's author and human rights activist. Anjali splits her time between helping in refugee camps and writing. Her latest book, Hope on the Horizon, is a children's handbook on empathy and making the world a better place. We'll start with a quick excerpt from her event at this year's festival, where she explained some of the circumstances that sparked her activism in the camps and inspired her stories. Now, this story is incredibly hard for me to keep telling over and over again. I've been doing it for three and a half years. It never gets easier. But I have to tell it because this little boy's journey and the fact that he didn't make it inspired thousands of people like me to get up and become the Tintins of our own world. Now, this little boy, Alan Curdy, three years old, with his one-and-a-half-year-old brother and his mother and father fled the war in Syria, one that's still raging. Twelve years on, it's still raging. We have seen the war images coming from Ukraine. That's just eight weeks. Now, times that by 12 years. That's what people are fleeing from. And according to our international laws, everyone like him, regardless of their age, should be allowed into a safe country until they can get back home. We are protected by those laws. Every single one of us has the legal right to become a refugee the day we need to be one. And also, according to those rights, we have the right to go to anywhere in the world we want to until we are safe, until we can get back home. But of course, that's not happening. And children like Alan Curdy and millions of people like him are being forced onto transportations which are deemed illegal because, of course, they're not government-sanctioned. But what choice do refugees have if governments are closing their borders and their doors? They have to get on those boats. They have to get somehow get to safety. And, of course, when anything goes wrong in the wider structure of the world, there are people that step in to try and make as much money from it as possible, and that's human traffickers. And human traffickers tell children like Alan and his family, give us all your money, give us all your wealth, whatever you've got left, we'll get you on a boat because no one else is going to help you, and we'll push you out. And, of course, we've had thousands of deaths since then, and Alan Curdy was the first death that hit the newspapers in such a way that you couldn't really ignore it. It was absolutely everywhere. His name, for three days, became global. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever platform, whatever news platform you had access to, Alan Curdy's name was there. And that was my Tintin moment. I began to realize that all of the faith I had in our international laws, all of the things I thought governments were doing to make sure that innocent people could be housed and could be saved from the bombs dropping on them, was broken. And I began to ask myself questions. Questions like, why is it, still to this day, that when we talk about refugees, we'll see images of young seemingly able men who seem to be coming you know, for a jaunt somehow, according to our press, but we don't see the other side of that same boat. We don't see the women and children, and we don't see the elders who are also trying to escape. And I began to have so many questions that I couldn't find answers to that I began to head out to the camps myself. So in 2016, um, I officially set up O's Refugee A Team, and since then we've been going out to the camps, uh, to the refugee camps. And when I say the word camps, of course, it doesn't mean the kind of camping trip that we might take, especially in this beautiful part of Wales. It means a kind of camping trip you will never, ever want to take. Now, in the refugee camps of Calais and Dunkirk, so I went to Calais and Dunkirk for two reasons. Number one, had no idea what I was getting uh, into, had no idea what I was doing, so if I got in trouble, I could come back home quickly. And number two, I'd heard about women and children refugees specifically in Calais and Dunkirk, so I thought, you know what, I'm passionate enough about this to get up and want to go over and see for myself what's happening and where their stories have gone. So I headed out, and when I landed... Five years ago, five and a half years ago, I was absolutely horrified to see that actually nothing I believed of what was actually you know, happening according to government help was being actioned. 
If you're a refugee and you have fled on foot 8,000 miles and you have survived somehow by some miracle those journeys on boats and those journeys of seeing other people die and somehow made it to the end point and you're still trying to get to somewhere safe, still trying to get to your family, you end up in this kind of situation where there is no one to hand you a tent or a sleeping bag or to welcome you. Instead, you are met with hostility and harsh words. There are no toilets or showers to greet you. If you're three or 86, it doesn't matter. You have to use the surrounding areas. And that's incredibly, not only humiliating, but incredibly dangerous. We have so many refugees who go missing at the point of just needing to go and have a shower, go to the toilet. And of course... Danger zones are earmarked. Um, this is an actual uh, chemical facility which was meant to be demolished. Refugees are having to stay in those kinds of areas. And I imagine waking up in the middle of the night with all kinds of stuff around you that shouldn't be there just because it has a roof. There's a roof offering you some kind of shelter um, and trying to get to something safe or get, trying to get to someone. Um, and of course, when it comes to the questions I had in my head about what was actually going on and why were people crossing the channel or trying to get to somewhere else, is because they're being forced to live in situations which we would not be able to tolerate, even for half a day, let alone months and years, because that's the kind of camping trip this can be for someone. Now, the questions that I had around women and children uh, started to trigger ideas for a story. And this is where I come to the boy at the back of the class and hope on the horizon. So the babies that I met in the camps uh, broke my heart in a number of ways, and they still do. Because every single one of us, when we are born, we are given a sheet of paper that tells the world who we are. It tells the world our name, the names of our parents, and of course, where we're born. And the moment it tells the world where we're born, we become citizens of that country. You have the right to demand things of your government and your country, and that includes safety and shelter. So we have a generation of children being born who are not even being given that piece of paper to go out into the world with, that piece of paper that will get you into a school and later on into a job and into the life that you want for yourself. And that's the kind of issue that we're going to have to deal with and our children, you guys, are going to have to deal with as you're growing up. What's going to happen to these kids being born without absolutely anything to show them that the world is welcoming of them? After Anjali's event and a very long book signing, I grabbed her for a conversation about the passions that motivate her, of which there are very many. Anjali is incredibly enthusiastic and I wanted to know if she could trace that character trait back to her childhood or if life events had brought it on. I do have, oh, you'd be surprised to know, some quiet moments, um, but they are only moments. I've been that annoying kid who's always pestering the teacher for more answers to questions. Um, and the one that goes around, you know, Mum, can you answer this? What's happening here? Da, da, da. Um, so it's always been there, uh, that incessant um, wantingness to kind of figure out what's going on and then try and do something about it. So uh, I think the youngest thing, uh, my first one of my first memories at school was um, going around trying to raise money from my teachers, because my parents wouldn't let me do it, um, to sponsor one of the WWF leopards from the adverts on television. Um, and, uh, and my teacher's just being very amused by it. But I thought, oh my God, they're actually helping though, so I can actually do something. Um, so yeah, we got to sponsor the leopard uh, when I was about seven or eight, and uh, I realised that, hey, mum and dad might say no, but I can go and help get other people to do it for me. <laughs> not? Excellent. And nothing stops since then. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a control. No. I want some of it. And um, do you feel like people who knew you back then would be surprised at all by the things you're in Dallas now? No, no. And I, I'm still friends with uh, a lot of people from my school. And uh, there's one memory that they kind of ping up all the time, which is in secondary school, uh, my geography teacher, just before GCSE, asked everyone to raise their hands if they would give up their house to prevent climate change. I was the only one to raise my hand. And I got 
like completely laughed at for it. But uh, yeah, nothing's changed. I'm like, I'll do this solo if I have to. Uh, but they're not surprised at all. Yeah. Uh, they're just like, yeah, this is typical. So amazing. Yeah. Did you get any kind of a, like a, like a high school yearbook? Most likely. No, we weren't or... we weren't cool enough for a high school yearbook. Yeah. <laughs> we just had our really <laughs> crummy kind of pictures. Uh, you know, the ones that um, get printed out and they're all fuzzy. Nice. So you can't really even tell who's in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, what that's what we've got for a yeah. Had an umbrella lit up in them as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 We yeah. don't have yearbooks. I mean, come on, I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. Um, and are there any objects you remember from your childhood that you were really attached to? Oh my God, I had a teddy bear, um, who, which was actually given to me on the day I was born by an uncle, um, and I took him all the way to university. Like I did not care. I was not ashamed to be seen with that teddy bear, um, and uh, and. There's also a seashell box that my mum bought from Brighton and I remember perpetually hoping one day to have one of my own, even though it's like my mum's, it's in my house, it is kind of mine, um, but just touching it and feeling it and wanted to keep it um, for myself. So that teddy bear and that seashell box for some reason were amazing um, and Agatha Christie books. There were very, there were lots and lots of them around the house and when my mum was done with them, I got to keep them and so I had my little look Agatha Christie library from the age of seven. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of murder stories in there and I would go in and talk to my teachers about them. So I think there was some worry yeah. about what was going on. Um, but yeah, other than that, it was, nice. yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I always, it's very interesting with like nostalgic objects that knowing what to do with them. Mm. I always think, because I moved house recently and you kind of get all these boxes down from the attic. You know, I need to look through these. And as soon as you open them, you're like, all these memories come back. Yeah. And like, I can't possibly throw this away, but all you're going to do is put them back in the box. Exactly. Put them in another room and then not be able to throw them away. Exactly. I think everyone's you. house and everything, you know, under the bed, you've got that storage box is filled with yeah. letters or photos or just, you know, beautiful things. And also the smell. Yeah. Sometimes just the smell of something will yeah. bring you back to something. So, yeah, those boxes are pretty special. So don't throw them away. No. Keep them. No, I just wish there was a way to. We, we need a library, a library of memories. Yeah, yeah. Is that maybe a bit of an ego trip? I don't know. No. <laughs> Come on in. No. Look at my childhood, <laughs> and then I'll make us some lunch. Yes, I deign to share this with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I love it. Do you do you feel like you see any of those objects cropping up in your writing at all? Oh, all the time. Um, so, uh, for example, in the boy at the back of the class, there's um, the lemon sherbets. I've given some out today, um, and the pomegranate. So for me, food is also something that's really, you know, that do, does bring back memories, especially if you've lost something or someone. Um, so that's pretty prominent throughout all the stories. And in The Night Bus Hero, can I say a bus? I mean, is big, yeah. and I'm, I haven't got one at home, but I do love a bus. Um, but buses for me um, really kind of emulate the journeys that I've taken in my working life. Um, and a lot of the experiences I've had is on when I'm traveling, or when I go to somewhere new, or when I'm traveling somewhere that I'm not quite sure what the journey is going to be like. Um, so yeah, a bus as well is pretty, amazing. pretty important. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So when you're hanging out with your friends nowadays, what <laughs> kind of conversations do you guys end up having? What really fires you up with them? Oh my lord, everything from politics. Politics reigns quite high, and also just what's going on in our communities, um, whether that's the children in our worlds or whether that's you know our parents or whatever. But I think it's pretty much what everyone does when you get around. And often it starts with television, like there'll be a television programme and drama happening and it'll somehow relate to your world and then that will somehow go to something deeper, i.e. politics, food banks, whatever it is. Um, but most of my friends are uh, quite passionate about things that they do. So there's teachers, there's frontliners, there's refugee workers um, and they're all, yeah, they're all hungry to talk. So our conversations are 
pretty much like me, never ending when they start. <laughs> uh, so they go well into the night often, yeah. uh, into days even. Um, and of course, now we've got WhatsApp and everything, so they just continue and continue. So yeah, the never ending conversations with friends, tackling everything. Yeah, including K-drama, why not? Oh, yeah. K-dramas, gateways to a lot of conversations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what do you do when you're trying to relax? Because you spend a lot of time. All your, It seems almost loads of your hobbies are actually helping other people. So <laughs> do, you, do you do much for yourself? That's just my own PR machine. No, <laughs> I wish. Um, sometimes I, I sometimes think, what have I done with my day? Um, it's, uh, yeah, when I'm not writing or working, um, it's, uh, yeah, lots of K-dramas, uh, being, you know, hanging out with friends, but also traveling. I like to disappear and I like to go to places where nobody knows where I am and I get to just, you know, just explore and meet people that I haven't met before. Um, if I could, if I had a good brain in this noggin, um, it would pick up languages where I could go and do that in other parts of the world. Um, and I would probably like to do that, uh, have a period of my life where I do that for a long time. Uh, disappear for like a few years and just travel and meet people um, but yeah hearing other stories really helps yes yeah. and music I'm a very bad dancer but I like dancing <laughs> yes that's the secret that is the secret yeah <laughs> you can't you can't look bad at dancing. no of course not. If it feels good yes and of course reading um, and reading is uh, you know whether it's poetry or whether it's a comic book or reading with my nieces and nephews that's one of my favorite activities um, it's just gorgeous to, to read a little story with them and see the little fingers following lines oh kill me now yes um, are you good without your phone, do you think? I love being without my phone. Very good. It's being with my phone that gives me trouble. Like, it's just, because it's, it's like this thing um, that's just perpetually in your life and you're worried about it all the time. Because have you ever had one of those moments where you think you've lost your phone and you have, like, your heart just kind of goes all over the place and it's yeah. literally there next to you? But I'm like, that's how people feel about their children, right? Yeah. And about, you know... Yeah. real life things and it's just this thing that's you have to do yeah so one of my favorite things when i do disappear I switch off like just switch off for days and days and it's like yeah you just you're free yeah amazing yeah. and you that's go back to the skill. world before phones yeah <laughs> yeah but nobody met up on time which is great i know i do i do feel <laughs> i feel really lucky actually to be i feel like i was the generation that just missed phones being in schools now because yeah i was not of that generation so we didn't have yeah. it yeah. I, I mean phones were in but the data was rubbish you couldn't didn't really have Facebook and stuff on your phone because it yeah. was kind of just the website which used mm -hmm. too much data and mm -hmm. now the stuff that I hear you watch some of those educating TV shows and things and it's crazy. horrifying I mean I'm of the generation of the flip phone so I got my first flip phone yes. when I was 21 so when I tell my nieces and nephews I survived 21 years without a phone they think that you know the dinosaurs t-rex they were around <laughs> roaming around something was going on um so it's really funny that they can't imagine a world with that and landlines i don't know what a landline is oh, the dial-up noise i know <laughs> i know i want to bring it back i feel like it should be a ringtone oh my god we still have a landline my, my mum refuses to get rid of the landline she doesn't like her mobile phone that much um, and also computers where you know you have the dot matrix so it's green and massive, yes. and the printer with the holes on the side, the printing paper with the holes oh, on the side. Oh, yeah. And he's like, eee, eee. Well. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love yeah. C-Fax. <laughs> that was, that was like but that the hurt your eyes. How are you not wearing glasses? Uh, probably, oh, my God. I probably am. I mean, I used to read with them. Um, I used to have one of those little alarm clocks where if you pressed a button in the top corner, it lit up and showed you what time it oh, was. <laughs> and I used to use that at night when I wasn't supposed to be oh reading in God. bed. And I, and I think I have ruined my eyes as a result. I have problems with them now. See, I'm wearing my glasses because I used to do that with a lamppost outside my window. Ah, Did you have a mum who's... A lamppost outside your window? Yeah, I was very lucky. So I lived in a council flat and, the, uh, and it was on the second floor. So the lamppost light just came just, like, just below it, just enough. 
my mum had no idea for years and then I was That's suddenly blind by the age of 10. And yeah. She's like, what happened? I've been feeding you spinach. What's gone on? And I'm like, little do you know of my adventures with a book at night. But yeah. Open up the magic orange yeah. tree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have to sacrifice. I know. Absolutely. If you could, um, if you could choose a historical event to live through, <laughs> which one? Oh my Lord. I've just had about 50,000 go through my head. Um... <laughs> Historical event that I would live through would probably it's a, it's kind of there's a religious one and there's also like a victory one. So the religious one would be the parting of the Red Sea. That would be awesome to see. Yeah. Just you know because um, and uh, the other one would be VE Day, just to be just to have that worldwide relief yeah. over something so terrible ending um, would have been really amazing to be a part of and to see and to witness. Um, so, yeah. Have you experienced any moments like that in your refugee work? Um, what, VE Day? Parties, relief? Parties, I mean, relief. I mean, there's that. always moments of it. Um, I think when we hear that there's someone that we helped in the camps who's suddenly made it and they've got, you know, their children are in school and they're okay and everyone's okay, um, that's kind of like a mini, mini VE Day. Um, but yeah, it's there's lots of moments of it. Otherwise, I don't think you can keep going. No. Um, so you need lots of moments of celebration amidst all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how, do you do you feel like you're quite good at sort of switching off from that stuff when you're away from it now, or? Uh, not all the time. Sometimes I come back from the camps and it's really hard when you're crossing the border because your car's empty and, you know, just this little passport that you have, which gives you, you know, ticket yeah. to everywhere to movement. Um, and also to respect and, you know, uh, just people seeing you as a human being because of this tiny little red passport um, that really always breaks my heart and I do have days when I can come back when I come back and I'm not really focused on anything because I can't my heart's still over in Calais and Dunkirk mm. um, but then of course uh, you remember that actually this what you think is a small part um, you, know, you can go back to it and you can do it over again and I have to build myself up to to go back and do it so yeah switching off I've learned to do it better I think particularly you know um, being in this day and age where it's hard to switch off with that phone with you know perpetual information coming in um, it can be a harder thing to do but yeah that's where the k-dramas and the music and the dancing comes in I think it's, it's so hard as well with, uh, with charity work like the minute that you kind of get involved you just feel like you could just give yourself It's an endlessly. eternal thing, yeah. It is, yeah. And, and you meet some amazing people that, yeah. that do so much and you just think, oh, should I be I know, and, it isn't, and you do compare yourself and yeah. it's so dangerous to do that. Um, and it's one of the things we have to stop doing to yeah. ourselves because um, if I could, I would be on the ground every single day, but not just in one camp. I want to be in all of them. Yeah. And I don't yeah. want to be in just one women's shelter. I want to be in all of them. Um, but you just can't do it. It's just, you know, that's where you need your friends and your networks and these other incredible people yeah. to step in and fill those gaps. What was your what was your entry point to refugee work? Is that something you've been interested in forever, or? So I worked in homeless uh, homeless shelters when I was a uh, kid from around about the age of fourteen, and I did meet refugees as part of those works and the soup shelters and um, uh, on the streets. Um, but it wasn't until twenty fifteen when Ellen Curdy's story broke, um, and uh, it really made me angry enough to get up and say what I'm doing is not enough. I was already working for charities; that was my day job, um, but it wasn't enough. So I wanted to get up and do something on my own. So I just asked all my friends. It was like, kind of like a mass call out, going, you know, "I'm really angry. Let's go out and find, uh, you know, uh, other refugee women and children to help." And so we headed for Calais and Dunkirk, and that was it. There was no looking back. Um, so I tell. I do talk about Ellen Cuddy a lot in my talks to children in schools. Um, it's a painful story, but um, when I think of his legacy and the fact that this one little child whose story was splashed out across the world, um, every single volunteer I meet in the camps 
always mentions him. So his his legacy is eternal, um, and that work is eternal. But um, yeah, getting to do even just a small part of it is a, a great honour. So I'll keep going for as long as I can. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good to find a calling. As well. It is. It is. So and to feel like yeah, yeah. Yeah, and multiple levels as well, not yeah, just in a small absolutely. way. Yeah. yeah, and and it must be so lovely to to come and speak to kids who aren't going through that as well. Yeah, but their their justice, their sense of justice, and wanting to get involved, even though they've not seen any of it, um, you know, in real life, so to speak, um, is really beautiful. So they're ready. Yeah, and it's incredible. Yeah, 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 and it must be amazing to see kids kind of campaigning and. Yeah, that was all undreamt of. Like, I literally sure. did not think that anything like that would happen. Um, so when we got the first kind of letter in from my agent that, hey, this kid's like gone and raised money for the local charity. I'm like, oh, that's incredible. And then there was another letter, another letter. Um, and then you get kids writing to Buckingham Palace and then you got kids writing to the Home Office. And it's just like, wow, yeah. that's amazing. And to feel like you've got a small, that you've had a small part to play in it is, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Fingers crossed that they continue in their journeys. It feels like it's, it's coming full circle. It's you with the, um, the leopard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's no TV adverts with cute, no. cuddly toys uh, that I can share with them. But yeah, no, it is absolutely, you're right. right. Yeah. Amazing. Didn't think of it like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything that you enjoy doing in your spare time that you think you're actually really bad at? Oh my God, all of it. <laughs> the dancing, definitely. Um, uh, I do love um, uh, sketching. So with the boy at the back of class, I actually uh, submitted it to my agent with um, lots, uh, I think it was like 58 drawings of the characters. Um, and she didn't say anything. She's like, I love the story. And I was like, oh, I should mention the illustrations. Okay, what's going on? <laughs> and then uh, she came back, she said, oh, we've got an illustrator already. And I was like, but uh, what a bummer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been told not to show them to human eyes by my brother. Oh, uh, okay. So uh, yeah, I'm really bad at drawing, but I love it. Mm. Uh, and I'm really bad at painting, but I love it. Um, and I'm really bad at any kind of sports and all, all of it, but I love it. It's just, yeah, why not? As long as you enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. I think I think it's quite a good. There, there was a really fascinating. Actually, my mum uh, has worked with uh, choirs for a long time. They oh. seem to be kind of middle-aged group of people, uh, <laughs> or a bit older. And she she did this fascinating thing with them, where she asked them all to draw themselves, and all of them drew these really childlike kind of pictures. And she'd been talking to this psychologist who was saying actually, most people who are adults, if you ask them to draw something, will draw like that because subconsciously there is a patch in their life when they're a child where mum stops putting your drawing on the fridge. Yeah. It's actually, you're a bit old dancing, a bit yeah. dancing, but you can't draw any better. <laughs> and it kind of, it's kind of now just rubbish, but I don't really need oh, to no. your ego anymore. <laughs> it's so painful. So I feel like it's, it's a really interesting... It is, it is. And that's so funny you mentioned a choir, because I do, when I was a kid, I loved singing, but I can't sing. To the point where my choir teacher, very kindly during the Christmas concert, decided that I needed to take the back row even though I was too short to be seen, but it was so that my voice would be muffled because I refused to sing quieter. Oh. Um, and I didn't realise until later, and I was like, wait a minute, no one can see me, which maybe means they can't hear me, so I just sang louder. But it was, it was like, it was completely like a very diplomatic way of trying to tell me, sweetheart, yeah. you don't belong, like you can't sing this note, but I know you're gonna try, but oh. let's just hide you a little bit. That's but yeah, so <laughs> I just remember that, it was so funny. Mr Saunders, yeah. you're listening. <laughs> I will not forget that memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't succeed. No. <laughs> um, I think um, I think also hey is is like a bit of a celebration of, of oh, like people being a bit of a nerd as well. Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything that you feel particularly nerdy about? I think my whole life is about nerdiness. Um, I mean, physically, you know, everything. Um, the only thing that I would say I'm not nerd in is maths. 
because um, I think I know when we say the word nerd you always think they're gonna be geniuses and everything um, but yeah I was the first girl in my class to wear glasses so I got called all kinds of nerdy names as a result of that um, and yeah just reading and I used to do this thing in the playground where I would sit and um, just try and get other kids to draw things like stories um, and everyone was just like, man, we need to play bulldog and we've got football. Like, what's going on with you? Like, what's actually wrong with you? Um, so I was always doing really, really nerdy things like playing chess and wanting to play chess. And no, no other kid wanted to do that with me. So, yeah, <laughs> it can be quite lonely being a nerd. <laughs> but it's OK. You find your, you find your, you become the cool nerd in your head anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that nerd is, uh, the word nerd is quite, um, I mean, it's one when you take ownership of. So if yes. you're a nerd, kudos to you. That means you're the coolest person in school. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. In the house. Um, I mean, it's amazing. Do, do you feel like you have a, a particularly good relationship with fear almost? So Helen Skelton said something amazing uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was on one of the online festivals about um trying to like get comfortable with fear like mm. good fear so putting yourself out of your comfort zone mm -hmm. and otherwise you just become sort of limited in life by boundaries yeah and absolutely new adventures yeah do you feel like you're quite good at, i imagine you've probably done quite a lot of putting yourself out there um i don't think i get i uh, i get scared i think i was used to be scared of things when i was younger but i can't really remember being so petrified that it stopped me from doing anything um God, that's quite a deep question. I'm trying, trying to think of a moment when I was too scared to do anything. But I think overcoming your fears is a daily thing. Um, I think speaking for me was a big thing. So getting on stage and speaking still really does make me uh, nervous in the mornings. Um, but I've overcome that by not focusing on the audience. It's just a story that I'm wanting to tell someone. If I can reach out to one person, that's great. Um, so there's little things, there's little blockers that happen in the brain. Um, and there's also, especially when, you know, just the world that we live in now where your every word is taken and it can be reconstructed or whatever, um, it can lead you to a state of paralysis. Um, and if you're campaigning or you're wanting to do something to change something, um, especially when it comes to, you know, politics or whatever, um, that can be, you know, quite paralyzing. But yeah, you just have to remember that that fear is almost a good thing as well. Like, you know, you just have to plow through it and you're doing it. You're scared for a reason. And it's usually a good reason because you care. And if you care, that means you just have to keep going. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Next Thursday is our last episode for a while. I'll be seeing off this series with a fantastic conversation with historian Janina Ramirez. She tells me about her ability to sleep on command, ancient treasures and bad historical documentaries. If you enjoyed this episode, do tell a friend about us or give it a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabie Nacharo Achanith. I'll see you next week. <laughs>